Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM, and now also at 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire's Gate City. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please subscribe to our podcast. Well, in 2016, the Democratic Party lost control of every branch of government. Countless explanations and excuses have been offered. And despite an anti-Trump backlash in 2018 and eking out the presidency in 2020, Democrats have been on a continued downward slide down ballot. Now facing the midterms, Democrats' prospects don't exactly look rosy. The news media is full of doom and gloom, and the president's popularity is underwater despite some really big successes, and Republican voter suppression efforts look likely to keep them with the upper hand well into the future. So what's the answer? Our guest, attorney, author, activist Tom Reston has one. His book, Soul of a Democrat, The Seven Core Ideals That Made Our Party and Our Country Great, focuses on the root ideas of the Democratic Party and how to start from the foundation of what the party is supposed to be about. He argues that Democrats need a coherent, blunt set of American ideals, and in this book he provides one. Tom graduated from Harvard College and the University of Virginia Law School. He's been deeply involved in Democratic politics for years, working on seven presidential campaigns, serving as the secretary of the Democratic Party of Virginia, and he served as deputy assistant secretary of state for public affairs and deputy spokesman of U.S. Department of State during the Carter administration. And in researching a little bit about Mr. Reston, uh, I came across a fascinating squib from uh, the New York Times way back in 1979. It was contained in, a, in an article about something entirely differently, but it talked about a case of mistaken identity because Tom Reston is the son of esteemed journalist, a New York Times longtime uh, correspondent uh, an influential uh, journalist, um, James Reston. And the article talked about a case of mistaken identity that gave Washington something to laugh about when Stephen Barber of the Daily Tra Telegraph in London tried to call Tom Reston, who was then State Department spokesman, for some official comment on a new development in Iran, dialed a number, identified himself, asked if he was speaking to Mr. Reston. Yes, came the answer. Mr. Barber said, what do you think about Iran rejecting the new American ambassador? And the reply came, did they? I didn't know. I've been sitting here watching the bullets game. What does it matter? There's hardly a government there anyway. I really don't think it makes much difference. Amazed at such undiplomatic frankness from the State Department spokesman, Mr. Barber immediately cabled the sensational comment to his newspaper. And within hours, the remarks were broadcast across Europe. It was not until Monday that an embarrassed Tom Reston, our guest, could cable the United States Embassy in London to say Mr. Barber, quite innocently, had been speaking with Mr. Reston's father, James Reston, the columnist for the New York Times on the phone, and that it was he who gave the from the hip comment. The Daily Telegraph also embarrassed yesterday, this is in the article, ran a correction saying that the State Department's real reaction in in absolute diplomatic terms was, quote, no comment, 
unquote. So, so Tom, before we plunge into restoring the soul of the Democratic Party, tell us what, what was it like to grow up with James Reston as your dad? Well, it was wonderful, really. Uh, you know, I had a great dad and I, I was really close to him. Uh, and uh, the dinner table every night was filled with questions about the news and what did we really think? We, I had two brothers. And so he was constantly asking us what we thought about politics and the world. And he was always emphasizing to us, don't ever be afraid to ask questions be a dumb boy, keep on asking simple questions, and eventually the person you're interviewing uh, may make a mistake and reveal something that is, uh, that is outstanding for the news. So I had a wonderful growing up. I was very lucky and very close to my dad. And that particular day, I, I remember it so well, it's seared in my memory. I was outdoors washing my car when the call came through that my father intercepted uh, and my boss, Hotting Carter, was in London with the Secretary of State and he told me that he levitated out of his bed when he read my comment and he started shouting, kill, kill, kill. <laughs> I had tried to kill the story, but, I, but, they, but they wouldn't accept my word. Well, uh, it's a it it's a great it's a great story, um, and it's amazing how diplomacy and uh, world affairs can sometimes turn on uh, small mistakes. But and Matt and I will will try um, to uh, ask questions, but not necessarily press you so far as to reveal something something indelicate. But let me start with this question. Um, it seems like your basic premise here is to get the Democratic Party thinking in terms of broad ideals and discussing its beliefs in those terms, rather than in the terms of specific policy issues in all their minute detail. And as we've seen today in the Washington Post, just moments ago before we went on the air, I saw an article saying Democrats, midterm prospects looking gloomy. They can't seem to get their messaging around uh, the legislative successes they've had. So why is it important to think in terms of broad ideals? Well, I think, you know, most people, when they think about politics these days, they see the Democratic Party as split between the, the progressives and, and the moderates. Uh, and uh, in my view, the whole discussion is wrong. The whole lingo of the Democratic Party these days is wrong. The, uh, the Democrats uh, discuss their politics in terms of the details of policy issues and legislation. And uh, frankly, I think it's a way of talking down to the American people. Uh, the details are boring and, and the unstated message uh, is really, we're the smart guys. We know all about the details. Uh, and so leave it to us and, and we'll decide these things. And frankly, uh, I think the ordinary citizen resents it. Uh, but, uh, you know, in a way, I don't really see the split in the party as be between the progressives on the left and the moderates in the center. I see a domination of the Democratic Party these days um, by the 
kind of the idea of the original progressives of 100 years ago. And that was that, uh, you know, the expert knows best. And when you have a complicated uh, problem, you should turn it over to an expert and let the expert tell you what the answer is. And I think both the people on the left and the people in the center of the Democratic Party these days essentially buy into this fundamental idea. And I think it's a catastrophic idea for politics. And I think the proof of it is that today there's not enough Democrats left to really carry a national majority and govern with it. And uh, I, I think, so I think the whole discussion is wrong. The terms in which the Democrats discuss their politics is wrong. And I think it, it uh, reveals a fundamental flaw in the way Democrats think about the country and think about themselves. And they're not gonna get to a structural majority unless they change the way they think about politics. Well, that strikes me as really right because you know we, we joke on this show that Democrat is derived from a Greek word that means repeats facts smugly. And it does seem like Democrats get into the business of sort of saying, you know, the top quintile of Americans. And you know, before you know it, your audience is asleep. So could you maybe boil down for us? You you in your book lay out seven core ideas just in kind of brief terms. What what are your core ideas that you think unify the Democratic Party? Well, um, these are fundamental core ideals. They are not the details of policy. They are not how to win uh, the House uh, mechanically to win an election. And if uh, if you ask anyone, well, what do you really fundamentally believe you people don't just pull these ideas out of thin air, they come from somewhere. And for purposes of this discussion, they are in the Democratic Party today because they came into the Democratic Party many years ago and they are the result of a struggle that the Democrat, fundamental struggle that the Democrats had with their opponents. And there are seven of these core ideals and they are the supremacy of the individual, which comes from Jefferson, the fight for the outsider, which comes originally from Andrew Jackson and the Jacksonian democracy, Uh, uh, the the social gospel, uh, which uh, which is what brought the sense of altruism into the Democratic Party. And that originally came from William Jennings Bryan and uh, a respect for ideas. And that was the democratic progressivism of a hundred years ago that came not from Theodore Roosevelt who had a different idea about progressivism, but from Woodrow Wilson. Uh, And then the safety net, which came uh, in the new deal with Franklin Roosevelt. And then the Democrats have always had, uh, have, they invented the paradigm for the conduct uh, and the definition of American foreign policy. And it was that America was the redeemer nation. And what we had to do was figure out how to make an argument for our ideals and yet demonstrate to the American uh, people that we were pursuing their raw, 
selfish uh, self-interest uh, in our conduct of uh, American foreign policy. And finally, this really goes back to Jefferson as well, but it's uh, all men are created equal and it is the foundational myth that allows uh, for the commitment of the Democrats today to, to the idea or the ideal of civil rights uh, in the United States, which is the idea of making a place for whole blocks of people as opposed to individuals uh, within uh, American society. Well, mm. if I could just, if I could push you a little bit on this, because I'm reminded of a, uh, a friend of, of Paul's and mine who also ran for the U.S. Senate. I'm not going to reveal who this was, but he also ran for the U.S. Senate. And he was being asked the key question by his lead consultant in the preparation for his campaign. And the key question of any candidate is, why do you want to fill in the blank of the office? Why do you want to be president? Why do you want to be senator? And the candidate responded, well, there are five great challenges that we face. And the consultant said, okay, okay, wait, hold on. For the purposes of this campaign, let's just say that there are three great challenges. It's always helpful to really boil down to something really core. And if you had to choose from your list of seven, could you give me a, a, an even smaller subset of really what is the Democratic Party about? Because if you stop people on the street and said, what are Republicans about? They could probably tell you in about a sentence, right? It's low taxes, strong foreign policy, traditional, I guess would be the euphemism for its social values. So is there a similar version in terms of ideals for Democrats? You know, uh, when I was growing up uh, quite a while ago and, and thinking about politics for the first time, if you had gone up to any man or woman on the street in this country and you had asked that question, why are you a Democrat? They would have been able to answer that question and uh, they would have answered it in four words and they understood it and all the American people understood it, the, the Democrats and their opponents, the Republicans, they all understood those four words. And the four words were, I'm a Democrat because the Democrats are for the little guy. And it's this idea of the Democrats will stand for the common man. And, and when was the last time you heard anybody answer that question uh, in that way uh, today? It isn't in the democratic lingo anymore. And once you, but once you say to yourself and once you say to other people, I'm a Democrat because I'm for the little guy, then there's a whole raft of, if, if you truly believe it, then there's a whole raft of things that follow along behind that. And that is essentially what the Democrats have lost. And that is why they are not able to find their way above 50%. Uh, uh, the country is split in half and, and we are all suffering for it. You know, it sounds like Sarah Palin was right. Um, the school of Sarah Palin said, you elites, uh, that's all you care about is you elites. And somehow along the way, the Democratic Party is now apparently defined by elitists, uh, intellectuals and high, high thinkers, but uh, low actors. 
um, uh, on the coasts who don't understand uh, what the little guy in this country is going through and can't seem to focus on the pocketbook issues that people care about. And as you say, if if what you care about is the little guy, and that's that's where everything emanates from as a party, um, it uh, it's it, it it shows a path to uh, avoiding the exact dilemma that Democrats now find themselves in with uh, trying to make sense out of legislative success at a time of global and national crisis, rescuing us from the from the from the Trump administration, but not getting any credit for it because nobody knows what at root we really stand for. You know what the Democratic Party was most often called during the 19th century? There was, there was a different word for our party. It wasn't the Democratic Party. It was called simply the democracy. And I really like that word for uh, our party. Uh, and uh, it, it is the idea that the people should rule. And, you know, uh, people give me this argument about uh, elitists, uh, that, that, that my party is all about the elitists and we have only elitists in, in the Democratic Party. That simply is not true of our party now. But it is true of our party that we have a problem of domination uh, from time to time, or we seem to have a problem of domination by elite, well-educated people who maybe are tone deaf to, to the problems uh, uh, of the little guy in, the, in this society. But I am not giving up on the party. Uh, I believe that uh, if you if you honestly listen to people and if you honestly respect them, uh, people who disagree with you, uh, instead of trying to demonize them and and, and to shove them into a, a different category from yourself, then you can make progress uh, uh, and and you you can make progress understanding other people's problems. And so that's the direction in which I think uh, our party needs to go these days. Well, it is kind of a mystery, isn't it? Because somehow, some way, we've gone from nine years ago, the Republicans nominated the ultimate plutocrat. He literally had a horse dance contested in the Olympics, right? Remember Rafalka? Like this was the elite of the elites who we successfully tagged as being a plutocrat, being someone who came in and shut down factories and took away good paying jobs from regular Americans. And that's why we had a second term for Barack Obama. And somehow, some way, and I, I, I will never understand this as long as I've been in politics, somehow Donald Trump, the most paper thin of plutocrats, had this, you know, he, he, he somehow adopted this veneer of, I am for regular people. And it worked. And he became the populist in America. And somehow we have ever since then been party uh, painted as the party of elites, effete, liberal, what it, whatever you called them, Paul, coastal uh, finger in the air as we sip our latte elites. 
Well, I want to hear more personally about how we went through that painful transition, but we've got to take a break on WKXL. And I'm about to evaporate from this episode, unfortunately. That's, I guess, what happens when you're a highly in-demand radio host. You're going to have to listen to it on the air. I will, I will catch up with the rest of you on the other side of this break. Back in a moment. Sir Tom, I'm curious. It, it seems like the ideals that you've outlined in your book, which are really important ideals for, for the party, um, have gotten scrambled between the progressives and, and the moderates, or at least completely ignored, um, because the, the conversations these days seem to be focused exclusively on policy matters, as opposed to the root cause, the root causes that Democrats stand for and are fighting for, and the foundational ideals, um, uh, it, the the scrambling um, has has meant um, has pr- produced a real discontinuity in the in the in the party. Now, Will Rogers, years ago, famously said. I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat. And at one point, Democrats, um, and maybe at many points, seem to take pride in uh, the diversity and wrangling of the party. But that doesn't seem to have produced uh, anything other than a perception that the Democrats can't get their act together. So I'm curious to know, how, how does one turn the ideals you talk about into action. In other words, voters need to see politicians walk the walk and talk the talk uh, to understand what they were about. So what do Democrats need to do to truly embody these ideals? I think they need to think about their politics differently uh, than they do now. I, I think if you if you have a if you have a disagreement with another politician uh, over policy and you're heading into the disagreement and say, well, I want subsection so-and-so of this law, or I want $100 million to do such and such, uh, it almost guarantees eventually that you're going to have an argument which is very, very difficult to uh, compose. Now, the Democratic Party has always been a, a difficult po- party. Its primary problem has always been disunity ever since the days of Thomas Jefferson. It is has never been a, a party that makes particular coherence or sense. Uh, but there is an example uh, of, of how to conduct this kind of conversation that could lead the Democrats back to their soul in politics today. And that was the uh, presidential campaign of 1912, uh, which was when Woodrow Wilson got elected president over uh, the Republican William Howard Taft and the progressive independent Theodore Roosevelt. And um, the, uh, that was the greatest campaign in American political history. And the Democratic Party was all over the lot in that campaign. 
Uh, it was uh, uh, it was split up regionally between the Southerners and the New Englanders and the Westerners, and it was split by uh, policy disagreements. And uh, it what it, 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 at Labor Day during that campaign, Theodore Roosevelt was surging, and it looked like he was going to come back to the White House. Uh, and uh, Woodrow Wilson began to conduct a different kind of campaign after he opened the fall campaign at Buffalo, New York uh, at Labor Day in 1912. And he was perhaps the greatest balancer of interests inside the Democratic Party that we have ever had. But he had a different kind of balancing too. And he began to balance uh, these great ideals of the Democratic Party, the, the need for popular sovereignty and the idea that the people should make the most important decisions uh, in America with the idea that uh, he had a great respect for um, ideas and experts. And for him, uh, you had to concentrate on the ideal of popular sovereignty, but you had to listen to the experts as well. And you could never allow the people to be subservient to the uh, experts in his view. He campaigned against the idea that uh, he believed that Theodore Roosevelt's progressivism was going to make the people just puppets of a national board of guardians and a government of expertise, uh, and he was opposed to that. And uh, so he began to balance these great idea ideals of the Democratic Party in public. And he said, look, we've got all these contradictions uh, inside the Democratic Party, but, but we can, we do have the ability to make sense out of our contradictions and to take the best from our conflicting ideas and, and make a government from them that can truly serve the American people. What's fascinating about what you say in terms of the um, conjunction of expertise, ideas, and the will of the people is that in the Republican Party today, the anti-intellectual uh, so-called anti-elitism um, has has also morphed into this vicious anti-science um, uh, point of view, which is so dangerous in in a world where we actually need to follow the scientists to deal with uh, uh, challenges of global impact, such as climate change. So the anti-intellectualism. Um, uh, has attracted the little guy, the ordinary citizen, um, uh, because of the way that the Republicans have posited uh, the the science as trying to essentially control uh, control ordinary people. So we've seen the anti-masking, anti-vaccination um, movement at a time of of public crisis. The delicate balancing act that you've described. The uh, Woodrow Wilson is something we sorely need now. Um, where do you place um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the spectrum of uh, those leaders who were able to uh, speak from the soul of the Democratic Party? 
He is our greatest modern hero. Uh, there has been no one since uh, Franklin Roosevelt who has, for instance, brought a new primal myth, political myth into the Democratic Party since, uh, since the days of the Great Depression. And uh, he stood for the principle that uh, the government uh, should be the, 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 if somebody got into real trouble in this country through no fault of their own, that the government would step in and rescue that uh, person from economic hardship uh, at the end of the day. And, you know, uh, this uh, ideal dominated American society for 50 years until from the point uh, of the 1932 campaign of Roosevelt during the depression up until uh, 1980 when Ronald Reagan came in and said, you know, government is the problem. It's not the solution to the problem. Um, so, um, but, you know, Franklin Roosevelt you know, in a way he didn't care about policy. He cared about helping individual people. The New Deal was the, was the greatest exercise in social solidarity that uh, American history has ever produced uh, ever since the very beginning. And yet each citizen at the, during the time, during the troubles of the Great Depression, each citizen understood that Franklin Roosevelt's policies were reaching right down into his own living room and helping him as an individual and his wife and his children. And so they understood that the, uh, that the national government had in mind uh, Thomas Jefferson's original idea of the purpose of government, which was to help the individual. And, and, and you know, the New Deal was a, a huge uh, panoply of different kinds of policies, but each American citizen understood that no matter its complexity, no matter its contradictions, no matter the different problems it was trying to solve, ultimately it was aimed directly at him as an individual and, and finding a way to help him. You know, uh, your, that, your explanation is clear and compelling. And uh, <clears throat> just a brief reflection, my co-host Matt Robeson recently um, wrote an op-ed for Newsweek magazine in which he posited a somewhat radical uh, theory. He pointed out that Stacey Abrams recently, through her uh, political action committee, had raised enough money to buy the medical debt of more than 100,000 uh, citizens in five different states, had just bought up and eliminated for them their medical debt, which, while not a specifically political action, um, uh, said to those people, here's somebody who cares about me as a person and has affected me immediately in my life. And he posited that, you know, think about, thinking about the billions of dollars wasted on uh, all kinds of political campaigns and consultants these days, if Democrats could wrap their brain around this notion of direct action that reached right down into the lives of citizens directly instead of 
the big government programs that we are so fond of, uh, it might uh, produce a lot better result than um, the kinds of campaigning that now goes on, which seems like a lot of uh, a lot of noise and a lot of blather, but not a lot of real expression of soul and core ideals and basic values about how to help people. Um, and I also think that in an information age of the kind we're in, um, communicating uh, the ideals and soul and what we really stand for, if in fact we still stand for that, um, is a complex, it's pretty complicated, don't you think? It is complicated, but it is, it is not an impossible uh, task. But the beginning of it is how you think about politics. This is, I am not talking here uh, in my views about the techniques of getting across to the American voter. I am right. talking about how Democrats think in their minds. Right. And uh, so I think we have to delve deeply into our soul and find out what we truly believe. And, uh, you know, the idea of rescuing somebody from medical debt or, or you know, many kinds of debt, I suppose, is, a, a, you know, uh, is a, a direct assistance to people that I'm sure relieves a, a great anxiety uh, off of individual minds. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, we have to think about our politics in a different way, not just ask some consultant, oh, well, how should I express my views about this or that? You know, I, as, a, as, a, as a former candidate and, and member of Congress and candidate for the U.S. Senate, I had my, I, I was an accidental congressman. I mean, I, I, I had not been deeply involved in party politics. I was a lawyer and a musician, and uh, I got this idea that I could help turn the country around during the war in Iraq and decided I would run for Congress and that it would take me at least twice to, to try. And I did and got elected the second time. But I had my share of uh, dealing with consultants. I mean, it was the standard practice and I adhered to it. I'd listen to the consultants and they'd do their polls and they'd tell me what issues uh, were were uh, were on people's minds and how to fashion my campaign, and I kept thinking and saying to them, constantly ignored. By the way, I mean I was just ignored when I said, "Okay, but what do I stand for?" And you can talk about all these issues. I I get that, and those issues seem peripheral to me, but. I want to talk to people about what I stand for and why I'm doing this and why I'm why I want to go to Congress. And 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 that was my refrain for six years of serving and running, which frankly was often in vain in the Democratic establishment. Fine, we could talk about policy and issues till the cow come home, but those are issues. What do I stand for? How do I communicate to people how deeply I care about them and what they're experiencing and what they're do, what's going on in the country and how I want to help them? Um, and it fell on deaf ears. It fell on deaf ears. And I think, you know, extrapolating from what you say that the... Um, uh, that the entire, uh, or the entire, all the institutions of political campaigns are in some ways masking 
or getting in the way of this ability to get down to the basics of, of what we stand for. Do you think that there are that that what should Democrats not do? What are they muddying the waters and getting crosswise with their ideals? Because let's hypothesize that Democrats have these ideals, even if we're not expressing them well, that it is at the core of the party and why we're Democrats and what we want to do. So what shouldn't they do? What muddies the waters so much? Let me turn it around uh, and start with what what rank and file Democrats should do uh, today. It seems to me that rank and file Democrats should remember that they are the Democratic Party, uh, uh, and that they have an ability that this is these are not a series of problems which are. Uh, incomprehensible or impossible to deal with. The Democrats, uh, rank and file Democrats can take charge of these things and they can assert themselves. What is required is for Democrats to flood the Democratic Party as they did during the 1950s when they, uh, when they produced the progressive resurgence that Adlai Stevenson left, and as they did again in the 1970s, when the anti-war people flooded the Democratic Party uh, and uh, forced the party to come to terms with, uh, the, uh, uh, with the Vietnam War. Uh, the Democratic Party is the democracy. It is run by the rank and file Democrats. They do have the power in their hands and in their minds to control this process. So, um, uh, and uh, the tragedy of American politics, or at least American politics on our side of the ledger, is that uh, we have given over our power to outside consultants who have uh, essentially digitized the American people, put them into focus groups, put them into polling, put them into you know all kinds of things and they run all these things through their computers uh, and somehow the power of the people to control the process has been taken away from them but uh, uh, the rank and file Democrats have the power to take it back. And I think some good old American old fashioned uh, anger on our part uh, is what's needed. And, uh, you know, uh, a, a real taking charge again. We are the party of the people, but the people, you know, have to use their power. When I uh, when I ran in, uh, I, I guess it was 2006, I came up with a or, or with the help of actually some smart people came up with a funny little thing that was grammatically incorrect, uh, but but seemed to capture something that attracted at least the people of New Hampshire, which was uh, I want to go to I'm going to go to Washington and take my backbone with me. Um, and it uh, it it brought a smile to people's faces, just as it did to you, though my listeners can't see it, because it uh, it said, you know, here's somebody who's going to stand up and do do what's right. And I, I, I 
I was lucky to get in and out of office uh, with my principles intact, um, although it was a challenge. It's a subject for another time. Um, uh, but I managed to, 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 to sort of traverse the moguls of politics in Washington um, and, and leave with my, with my head held high, even though I didn't win the, my race for the U.S. Senate. Um, who in politics today seems to connect to the core, the soul, the core ideas? Does anyone, do you see anyone who gets it? Gee, you know, there's a lot of talk in the Democratic Party about how the uh, working class has deserted uh, our uh, has deserted our party. I don't see much real action in the Democratic Party uh, aside from the hang wringing, uh, hand wringing, uh, to, to to sit down and listen and respect the values of some of these people who have deserted the Democratic Party. Uh, so I, I, and I think that if you are looking to move beyond a situation where you got half the country in the Republican camp, half the country in the Democratic camp, and nobody can really assert a working majority uh, for the United States, that we just have to think differently. You know, I. You know, I, I don't see much of this fundamental rethinking going on in the party. You know, during the last uh, presidential campaign, you know, for a while I, I was looking at Pete Buttigieg and thinking, well, maybe, maybe he understands the need to get beyond policy and to talk about real fundamental ideas. But, but I think ultimately he you know, he, he was not able to break out into a different kind of uh, uh, discussion. And so I think uh, it, uh, it awaits a solution. It awaits someone who, who will insist on providing the solution. The last, uh, uh, the last uh, sentence of my book, it was uh, about the democracy. And, uh, and, and actually the name of the last chapter is the, was the new democracy. And the last sentence of the book was, I await the new democracy. Well, I'm still awaiting it. Yeah, um, it, it may be, it may be, it may be a long wait, but it may be something that Democrats, uh, that Democrats get. I mean, I, I, I have a confession to you. I, uh, I needed work in 2019 uh, and I um, took on the job of being the New Hampshire campaign manager and policy advisor to a totally out of the box candidate named Marianne Williamson. And I don't talk about it too much because people kind of, some, some people snigger, but some people uh, were very interested because she represented a complete out-of-the-box candidate who, frankly, was not well-versed in policy. She, she, didn't, she didn't have much of a clue about the way government worked or policy. And her argument was, we need a fundamental rethinking of what leadership means and where it comes from. And uh, we need to uh, get beyond these discussions about particular policy incentives and talk about the soul of America 
and uh, what it means to, to bring different kinds of ideals to government. Well, Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. This is Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, for my co-host, Matt Robeson. We've been talking to Tom Reston, whose fascinating book, Soul of a Democrat, The Seven Core Ideals That Made Our Party and Our Country Great, um, is available today on Amazon. Pick it up. Tom, thanks so much. I hope we'll have you back some other time. Thanks a lot.